Hi, you're listening to the Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, for episode 167, we talk about the problems with Bitcoin surveillance and joint market fidelity bonds. This show is brought to you by Kraken, a world-leading Bitcoin exchange. They offer a high-quality platform with high trading volume and low fees, no minimum or hidden fees. Kraken also offer 24-7 support. There's chat on the website. You can sign up really quickly. They are consistently rated the best from a security standpoint and rated the best by their customers. Kraken offer Kraken Pro mobile app, delivering all the security and features you love about the Kraken Exchange in a beautiful mobile-first design for Bitcoin trading on the go. There's also Kraken Futures mobile app. If you want private, more personalized service for large block trades over 100,000 US dollars or more, go to the Kraken OTC desk. And Kraken also offer the Crypto Watch platform, a popular charting and trading terminal for Bitcoin markets. Go and sign up at kraken.com. This episode also brought to you by Unchained Capital, Bitcoin financial services, empowering customers with multi-signature related products. Unchained offer a two of three vault. You can use Trezor or Ledger. It's really easy to use on the website. And if you're a bit unsure about it, you can even test it out with Caravan first. And these Unchained vaults are a great option to secure your Bitcoin for the long term. And then if you need US dollar liquidity, but you don't want to sell your Bitcoin, that's where Unchained offer collateralized loans. You can put up Bitcoin, get USD, that Bitcoin is stored on-chain, and you can share in the security of your Bitcoin by holding one of three keys. Check out the incredible content on the Unchained Capital blog. They're offering excellent services. I think you will enjoy partnering with them. Go and sign up at unchained-capital.com. Next up is Swan Bitcoin. Are you regularly stacking Bitcoin without manual processing? If you're in the US, look up swanbitcoin.com. You can link any major US bank account via ACH and auto buy weekly or monthly. It's delivered to your wallet or stored with a licensed and regulated custodian. Swan Bitcoin are focusing on education and Bitcoin advocacy. They want customers to hold their own Bitcoin private keys. I'm an advisor and I hold a small equity stake also. Swan Bitcoin are the cheapest for auto dollar cost averaging and check out my recent episode with CEO and co-founder Corey Clipston. So there's givebitcoin.io for Bitcoin gifting and swanbitcoin.com for auto Bitcoin stacking. So Chris Belcher is a Bitcoin privacy advocate and developer. He first appeared on the show on episode SLP 58, which is a good Bitcoin privacy overview for those of you who are a little bit newer. So in this episode with Chris, we talk about some of the problems with Bitcoin surveillance companies and just Bitcoin surveillance in general. Some other relevant episodes that you might be interested in as prior listening for this episode, 149 with Waxwing, Adam Gibson, where we talk about join market, and also one of my recent episodes, 165 with Raphael Jacobi, should CoinJoin users be flagged and is privacy illegal? Here is my interview with Chris Belcher. Chris, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. So Chris, I know you have been vocal recently in your criticism of uh, Bitcoin surveillance companies, and I, I share your views on this. I thought it would be good to just have some discussion from the Bitcoin uh, holder perspective, what are some of the things that we do know currently about how some of these companies operate and what are some of the threats that we might see coming from them? So perhaps we just start with a little bit on what techniques we know that they are already using. Right. Uh, so a big, well, a big obvious one we know is that they analyze the blockchain. Uh, so they have 
the blockchain leaks a certain amount of information. For example, if there's address reuse or if there's the common, if if a transaction has more than one input, then that's strong evidence that there's inputs owned by the same person. Uh, that's called the common inputs ownership heuristic. Um, and there's also other, like they're, they're based on assumptions, heuristics, like you can try and figure out or guess which output is the change output. Um, so analyzing the blockchain is one thing, but they don't only do that. So there's a point I made earlier that they're, they're often called things like chain analysis companies. And I prefer to just call them surveillance companies because they do a big part of their job is analyzing the blockchain, but they do other things as well. They, uh, they analyze the peer to peer network. Um, they might make, they probably run fake nodes. There was one that was in back in 2015 courts running fake Bitcoin nodes. Um, so they're trying to figure out users' IP addresses. And with that, they can also, if, if a node broadcasts a transaction, i.e. sends a transaction that it previously didn't receive with their fake nodes, they can possibly figure out who, who did, uh, like which IP broadcast that transaction. Another thing they most likely do is run Electrum servers um, or other, other servers which serve lightweight wallets because they the way these wallets work by default is they send all their, all their Bitcoin addresses to this server and the server knows what the addresses are and then sends back the history. And then if, if your adversary is running the server, then they essentially just get all your information. I'm trying to think what else they do. Well, it depends on the company. Of, I, I normally try and think of it of what they could do rather than what the specific companies do today because they can always change tomorrow. But probably what they get is it, when there's, uh, if a user gives AML KYC information, it probably ends up in the company's database. I imagine that would be an obvious thing to, to track. And so let's um, break some of those down a little bit just to spell that out for the listeners. So for example, if they are, as you mentioned, running the Electrum servers on the public servers. Uh, so in this case, the user wants to be able to easily use Electrum wallet to plug in their hardware wallet or whatever. And if they are not running their own Electrum server, such as using your Electrum personal server or Electras or Electrum X, then they are polling out against the public servers. And as I understand, there are some, because Electrum is like a very OG software. So there's a lot of, there are people who are just running just genuinely not surveillance Electrum servers out there, but there are also likely chain analysis and chain surveillance companies uh, doing that as well. And as I understand, and maybe you can correct me, um, it's essentially like once you've put up like that XPUB, the Electrum server is kind of running against its own filters to kind of send you back the information that you need. So your wallet knows, okay, this is what my balance is. These are my transactions. And basically once you've given that up to that chain surveillance company's server, now they know uh, these balances are linked or these addresses are linked, right? Yeah, because they'll see they'll see not just your addresses which are used, but they'll see addresses that haven't been used yet. So if you receive a payment on an unused address, they will they will have they may have information from the server that's been synced before. So even if you never use a server again, they still could know about new transactions. Uh, sorry, got sidetracked. What was the the question? Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's it. And and also, I think the other part is if you take these different pieces of information and combine them, that's also another very insidious factor. Because, for example, I think it's it's colloquially known that basically when a Bitcoin exchange signs up with one of these chain surveillance companies, there's also some form of information sharing, as you mentioned, with the AML KYC, right? And so as you were saying, we have to assume that they are 
using the information that they can. So, for example, if they know, okay, Stefan Levera signed up with Exchange A, and then that exchange, and then say I do a withdrawal from that exchange to this address, then that exchange might well be passing that information. And then from that, what kind of clustering information could they do? Yeah, so they would know in that situation, they would know this address that you've withdrawn to is linked to Stephen, Stefan Levera or, or whichever information, whichever ID they have. And uh, when they see Bitcoins flowing from there, they could say, okay, now Stefan Levera is sent to this, I don't know, this many Bitcoins to this address and the remaining Bitcoins to this other address. So they, it's, it's a really big starting point for them. And then uh, with the other techniques of analyzing the blockchain, they can... Uh, they could figure out, they could, for example, guess if that was you making a payment or if it was maybe ascending to your own, um, a different wallet or like if you're paying many people at once or that kind of thing. There's, they could essentially see all the flows of money around. It's like a combo uh, of different factors that will uh, all you be used to basically try and destroy an individual's privacy. And it may also the other thing is people have not necessarily been very good about their digital hygiene and they might share an address publicly online. And then once they've got that entry point into your finances, that can be the string that they pull on to go and find more about you. So let's say a couple of years ago, you were not careful and you publicly posted an address and then they could sort of trace from that point onwards and say, okay, where did, all the, where did it all flow from there, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's, I suppose a good analogy might be if someone's trying to, if you're a scientist trying to figure out how uh, some system works, then you, you attack it from different angles. You say, what if I measure the temperature? What if I measure the pressure? And, and all the things, when you combine them together in the same way, they might combine IP address information, blockchain information, and AML, KYC information all together to get as good an idea as they can of um, of all your of all your data or your financial data. Do you know if any of these surveillance companies have been able to unmix any coin joins or anything like that? I don't know. I, I wouldn't know. I, I don't um, talk to them or anything like that. But they they may unmix. There are attacks on coin joins that we we know of. Like for for example, there's often in this. In the equal equal amount coin join that are implemented today in Join Market, Samurai Wallet, and Wasabi, there's the coin join output which has the equal amounts, and then there's normally a change output as well. And uh, the change output isn't it's not part of the coin join. And just by looking at the transaction, you can deterministically link it to the inputs. So, as an example, if someone had two bitcoins as an input, and then the coin join output was 0.5, there would have to be 1.5 as change left over which could be linked. And I've seen um, with that kind of thing, you could you could analyze the, the at least that amount going forward, even if you couldn't, the coin join amount. Now, there is a thing you could um, do there that is to have so-called sweep coin joins, which is if you have, I don't know, if you had two Bitcoins and you do a coin join, which is exactly for two Bitcoins. So there's no change left at all. If there's no change, then then that attack vector can't be used. Um, but from what I've seen, it's more likely that they, um, the exchanges and other users of the of the surveillance software, they just block coin joins if they can. So that's happened, or maybe it's not coin joins. Uh, it's only happened to Wasabi, as far as I know. But they've 
there was a case a few months ago with a user of Binance got their deposit blocked because it came from Wasabi. And I actually read a few weeks ago, uh, the company Chainalysis had like an annual report, 2019 annual report, which is really interesting if you're interested in Bitcoin privacy. And, and I actually mentioned this incident right at, right at the end, like in section seven saying, oh yeah, this happened at an exchange blocks coin join. And they, I've forgotten the exact words, but they saw it as a positive development. Um, I think they said it's a good thing or we hope it continues. We hope the rest of the industry ad adopts it. So it seems likely that the, the technique won't be to spy on coin joins, but just censor them, block them if they can. And uh, like really, if you if you want to use coin join, I don't think there's an answer to that. But what you have to do is not use those exchanges. So there's actually a, I've seen a, a user called, a Reddit user called Cointastical who actually has a whole list of P2P exchanges. They're the ones, you know, so BISC and HODL HODL and local cryptos and loads of others I won't list. And they, if you use them, because it's peer-to-peer, -peer, then there's no one, your your coin joins can't be blocked because they're going straight to the other person. That's an interesting um, debate there. And I my sense of it is, so far, it seems like, it seems like the those Wasabi cases were due to the plus token taint, uh, but it yeah. could well be that in future other exchanges also start to block or flag a CoinJoin user merely for using CoinJoin as well. So I guess if we were to then try and think about what are some of the risks that Bitcoin surveillance companies present to the Bitcoin ecosystem, how, what would you say about that? What risks do they present? Well, I guess the biggest one is just spying on everyone. Like you, um, people's financial privacy is, is a big deal. Like you don't... Um, in the fiat system, you don't, it's not that your bank statement is open for the entire world for all your, I don't know, for just random members of the public to see. So that's a really big thing is you can't, there's all kinds of consequences. Like you might get robbed. You might be, uh, what do you call it? You might be um, overcharged if someone knows exactly what your income is. You might have uh, comments or things like that. Um, so just general privacy. Privacy is nice to have and losing it is a, is a bad thing. Then there's other things. There's this idea of fungibility, which is for Bitcoin to be good money, uh, every unit has to be the same as every other unit. So um, I don't know when you you accept payment, then you you shouldn't have to spend lots of time and energy saying, okay, what if making sure that five hops back this didn't come from something you know a hacked stolen bitcoins or something like that. So that could be a systemic risk because we could end up in a, a nightmare situation where it's only possible to accept Bitcoins if you have an account at some surveillance company. Um, and you can only accept Bitcoins if you've checked that the incoming thing is fine according to the surveillance company. And that would essentially be centralization because it means you can only use Bitcoin if you're signed up to this one or two companies. Uh, what else? So uh, I'm, I'm just trying to, trying to list things that like the, the bad consequences of, of the fact that the uh, Bitcoin's, pri Bitcoin's privacy isn't perfect. So... There's a thing that there's no mechanism for appeal. Like these, uh, the analysis, especially when they're analyzing the blockchain, is based on assumptions or heuristics, and they can be wrong. But if they've if they flag your transaction, you don't really have, you can't appeal. Like if someone blocks you and say, "Oh, I think your transaction five hops ago came from someone who stole something," you can't. Where do you appeal to? Where do you who do you go to? There's nothing you can really do. Uh, and that uh, that seems just not very, I don't know, not very moral. Right. Yeah. So the way, um, at least in some of those 
recent cases, so like Ronald McHoddled and uh, Katzelotl from uh, there was the Binance Singapore, and I think one was a Paxos case. I think essentially the the exchange compliance team would email the, that customer and say, "Hey, we saw you were just you know doing a coin join, and it went through this address. Tell us why you were doing that. Why are you using coin join?" And then now the customer is placed in this really awkward position of having to basically say, "No, look, I care about my privacy. I'm not doing dodgy things, but you know we should be able to protect our privacy." And that, that's kind of this awkward spot and. And as you say, it's sort of like a black box because there's all these things happening inside there, but it's not like the chain surveillance company tools code is all out there and open source and people can look at it and yeah, challenge exactly. it. They can only just respond to the customers of those surveillance companies, which is, for example, Bitcoin exchanges and the compliance department in those exchanges who's doing the email out to them saying, oh, hey, you got flagged for doing this coin join, whatever. And I think another thing that's interesting to point out as well is that at a protocol level, it's not like my Bitcoin core node has a blacklist and says, oh, these are dirty coins or tainted coins and these are clean coins. There's no distinction there, right? So if I'm running BTC pay server or if I'm just accepting a Bitcoin payment, there is no blacklisting of coins. And yet it's like some of these surveillance companies are in a quasi sense reinserting a blacklist yeah exactly it's their it's their reality they they've come up with an idea of taint or an idea of a certain number of hops and none of that exists actually in the software and it's the only reason they can impose their reality onto us is because we use their centralized exchanges and if people could use not not just peer-to-peer exchanges if you could use bitcoin directly if you could buy things from actual merchants that you want to that you want to spend money on and actually use your money then they um then you can get around that. So then you then it's much harder to censor you. Really, the reason their reality is so strong is because they can censor Bitcoin users by blocking their transactions. Yeah, although I think it's one of those things where for some time, people will just be struggling to reconcile the fiat money world with the Bitcoin world. And it's the hard reality is that a lot of these companies are subject to government regulation. And if they want to provide a vehicle for people to put their fiat into to try and buy bitcoin with it and so on then they've got to be subject to these kyc and aml laws and sanctions laws and all the all the rest of it and i think the other point that bears in mind is again from one of my recent interviews with rafael Jacobi, where he was basically making the point that it's not really clear that the law specifies that you must use a surveillance company to be in compliance it's kind of there's this sense of as you know to use the to use the joke or the terminology that he said it was almost like we pretend to do the work and they pretend to pay us and so in in your view is it is it that there's a kind of fake it till you make it aspect here they're trying to make this into the quasi standard that every exchange theoretically has to use some kind of surveillance company is that what you're saying yeah yeah that sounds right and there there's that point that you um you don't necessarily, you could probably stop money laundering and the other things that government's interested in without doing the mass surveillance on every single person, even if they're just using Bitcoin for other things, like buying an anonymous VPN. So maybe there is, I mean, I'm not a lawyer or anything like that, but maybe there's some way you can have a win-win where governments really can stop money laundering, but also Bitcoin users can get privacy that they that they want that is that exists in other financial systems in 
as well. And uh, yeah, definitely the the surveillance companies they have a strong incentive to make themselves out that they are that the only way you can obey the law is to get an account with them and pay them all their fees. So so yeah, yeah, I agree with you. They maybe it could be more. We could be more. Uh, maybe the community could somehow make it more known how flawed some of these heuristics are. So just today or yesterday, the BTC Pay server implemented released a version which implemented PayJoin, which is a kind of coin join that's invisible. It can't be. It looks exactly the same as any other regular transaction, but it's actually a coin join. Um, so if they, I mean, they could already be very popular because they're invisible. We don't know. But if it was more known that the surveillance companies' heuristics are actually flawed or can be flawed, then maybe people would would realize that they, they don't need them and they could maybe follow the law in another way. The other thing as well in terms of how we think about these surveillance companies, right? It's not like the way I'm thinking of it is not like, oh, yeah, everyone's just going to shout them down and they're going to leave. You know, it's, it's not like that. It's more like accepting that as long as it's possible, somebody will try to exploit that sort of regulatory window to try and make a profitable business out of this. So really, the actual response just needs to be more like understand that they're not your friends, right? Uh, and take actions that will uh, ideally cut against those heuristics to make it at least less feasible and less certain that these coins are owned by X, Y, and Z person because you know, they've been, they're actually the result from a pay join or they're actually coming out of a coin join, etc. Yeah, that's right. And it's not just, so we, me and you are focusing a, a lot on the companies that exist in the kind of uh, America, Europe, Australia sphere, but they'd also, like you can imagine North Korea um, building their own software, like just regular that they get some people to write it or China that, that has nothing to do with our chain analysis, clipped at the companies we know, but just they analyze the blockchain as well. So yeah, the long-term or even short-term medium plan has to be to make these companies and make this analysis impossible. Because um, yeah, you won't you won't win by like trying to convince them, right? That is also a good point as well to touch on because you may see different regimes with different definitions of who is a terrorist and who is a, a quote-unquote bad person who you're not allowed to do business with. And so then you end up with this weird scenario where depending on which surveillance company you are subscribed with or which you know you'd have different lists based on different countries as well so that to me seems like a very odd scenario that that's that's kind of the the implied outcome of oh yeah everyone's gonna use surveillance companies right what would you say on that yeah yeah it goes against the idea of the ideal of bitcoin as permissionless as borderless as all these other things that that we we like Bitcoin for, that actually you'd be reimposing these political borders back in. That a, I don't know, a Bitcoin in China would actually be different from a Bitcoin in in uh, Europe or America. And another point I've seen you make as well is around the ability of some of these companies potentially we don't know yet uh, to exert influence to block a protocol upgrade. So can you tell us a little bit about that? How might that play out? Oh yeah, so that was that that kind of happened. I mean, it's it's hard to tell, but they. Uh, back in when SegWit was being activated, there was the big politics, the big movement around the UASF to... Um, so SegWit was a, an important update that was necessary for Lightning and loads of other great um, great ideas to be implemented into Bitcoin. Uh, but a, a coalition, so a bunch of miners and some other people really didn't want it to happen. They were um, 
the Jed tried to stall it in loads of ways. And then the Bitcoin community did this user activated soft fork, which made it work. And one of the, it seems one of the people who were against SegWit was, I remember there was a, a guy called Jeff Garzik, and it seemed he, he, he had a, a transaction surveillance company, which I think was called Block, spelled with Q or something like that. I'd have to check. And they, he was on record saying, oh, yeah, the blockchains are really great. It's a really big data set. We're going to analyze it. We'll get loads of information. It'll be wonderful. And he really didn't like the idea of lightning because it removes all information. It means he can't analyze it because the information is all off chain. Um, and he was a big player in stop, trying to stop SegWit from happening. So in that sense, um, you, that kind of already happened, that they, these misaligned incentives um, made people try to oppose updates that would improve Bitcoin. As for how that will happen in the future, I guess the same kind of thing. They tried to use some kind of political influence to stop it, to stop it happening. Yeah. So putting that into real world example, I mean, again, we're kind of hypothetical. We don't know exactly how it plays out, but hypothetically, let's say we get the Schnorr taproot soft fork, let's say later this year or sometime next year, perhaps. And then the, you know, one of the next ones in line that everyone in the community would really is quite excited about is the cross input uh, signature aggregation soft fork or improvement that, you know, again, that's, it's still to come, but that is one of those benefits that would really incentivize a lot of coin join usage because it would then be cheaper to do, um, to use that kind of transaction spent. And so potentially at that point, there could be pressure to try and block that upgrade would would you say? Yeah, yeah, and even Schnorr and like Schnorr can has has a lot of privacy improvements for Lightning and those kind of things. So you can imagine people opposing it on that point of view. Although I don't think it would succeed because we already saw with the UASF for SegWit that ultimately all the objections didn't matter, and the most important thing was full nodes and what what users who were able to run their full nodes is what they wanted, and everyone else, all the miners, all the um, exchanges and that they had to fall into line eventually so they could they can try they might they might try kind of fake news thing like have loads of bots on twitter and reddit that spread false information but apart from that it, um in theory it's, the update should happen yeah that's a good point as well around lightning and so on although lightning has its own um kettle of fish as well because that can be there can be other ways of potentially surveilling that yeah i fully expect that as Lightning gets more popular and adopted, I fully expect these surveillance companies to also start analyzing Lightning. So maybe they'd run their own fake Lightning nodes and try and get you to open channels with them or or something like that. I don't know. And I don't want to give them ideas. But yeah, that'll be, <laughs> that's in their purview. Yeah, that's right. And so we might see that occur as, as well if Lightning, you know, as Lightning grows. Um, and so I think it's also worthwhile pointing out some of the common practices today that are reducing the privacy of Bitcoin users today. So for example, there is a lot of address reuse. So that's one example I can sp I can think of already where exchanges are commonly just reusing addresses. And then that allows much easier tagging of the cold wallet cluster. So exchanges typically have a hot wallet and a cold wallet. And then typically there's a whole bunch of people who are out there just trying to tag different addresses and saying, oh yeah, I think this is the, let's say Bitfinex cluster and this is the Bitstamp cluster and so on. And then then they can sort of try and trace it on the way out as well. Yeah. So do you have any views on that practice and whether if you know that's another thing that can be agitated for by the Bitcoin community around stopping 
address reuse as a practice? Or in your view, would that be not very effective anyway because people would still be able to tag things and so on? Well, yeah, well, I think it would be, it's worth a go. Every improvement helps, even if you if you can improve a small amount, it's still a big part of the of the you know the ingredients that make the pie of Bitcoin privacy. But this exchange thing is actually a great example how it's not just it's not just um, uh, chain analysis companies like doing AML that are that we have to fear. So you could there's I think there's a common example of there's a trader who wants to he thinks the Bitcoin price is going to go down, so he goes he sends money to an exchange and he has to wait for three confirmations before he can press sell. So you, to 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 get into his trading position uh, but what's happened is if he's reusing addresses or if if people can figure out that his transactions have been sent to the exchange they're going to front run him so they're going to say oh, okay look loads of money just loads of bitcoins just went to this exchange someone's clearly going to sell why don't i open my position first so then what what would happen is this trader he's going to find the price has gone down already he's been front run and he won't be able to make money from his his trade and uh, so that that's like a direct financial benefit for 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 um, having good privacy practices, and it's it's really like hard today because I've seen loads of exchanges they only allow you to make a new address every month or 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 something like that. I think there's even um, Bitmex actually uses vanity addresses, so they so like it's really really obvious that they that this address belongs to Bitmex. Right, and I think that's also one of the potential benefits there of. For these people who are doing large volume, they might use Liquid, and then Liquid has confidential transactions and so on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so another practice there that recently, uh, as you mentioned, BTC Pay Server have got PayJoin support now, or Pay to Endpoint, uh, depending which terminology we're using. Um, so uh, I know you, and I believe I think Waxwing might have also commented on this as well. I think you were saying it doesn't take a lot of people using PayJoin before the common input ownership heuristic really starts to break down because this breaks that. Yeah, that's right. So the, the these uh, these PayJoins, um, they they they're kind of coin joins. So they break the common input ownership heuristic, but they do it in an invisible way. So pay joins look the same as regular transactions. So if there's anyone analyzing the blockchain, they can't exclude them from their analysis. They have to, if they're following the algorithm to cluster together wallets using this common input heuristic, then they'll they'll in theory get a huge big cluster that contains the service plus all its users. And as I understand, and maybe uh, I might have slightly misrepresented this in the past, whereas I was saying pay joins, you generally don't know that they are a pay join, right? Uh, but is that, it might theoretically be in some cases, you actually can tell whether it is a pay join. Is that true? Yeah. So there, there are some, there's some uh, attacks. So for example, it works a bit like this. So suppose you had inputs, which are say that they're, they're five BTC, two BTC and one BTC, and you want to make a transaction, which is for six BTC, you'll have to take your input for five and one and use them together. Um, and if you had, uh, if you had a pay join where, so you, you're kind of the amount you wanted to send determined the inputs you had to use. So if you in if you took the same inputs again, five, two, and one, if you only wanted to send a transaction for 0.5, but then you used all your inputs, you used five, two, and one together, then that might be a bit unusual because what happened there? Your wallet was spending more block space uh, when it, it could have just spent one input. It could have just spent the one which was one BTC. 
And there's a tax there of pay join because if you it can happen if you look carefully at the amounts, you end up in that situation. You can you, uh, the analyst could suspect something's a bit wrong because the amounts are a bit unusual. So that maybe the the wallet used it looks like the wallet used more amounts than it needed to in that way. I see. Yeah, I believe you've called that the unnecessary input heuristic, yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. The unnecessary input heuristic. Although on the other hand, there's some wallets which do this anyway. So some wallets want to consolidate their inputs. And especially if demand for block space is low, they might use more inputs than they need to just to consolidate them. Uh, so it's, it's, it's another heuristic as well. Like it might work in some cases, but, not, but it could also be this other thing, which is, really, which is completely innocent. And the other cool thing with PayJoin, as I understand, is that it actually, from a network perspective, is more efficient in terms of chain space usage because you're actually using less UTXOs or pieces of Bitcoin. And so as I understand, so for example, the BTC Pay Server Merchant who enables PayJoin, they would get sort of this like a snowball accumulating piece. I think Waxwing has spoken on this idea. So could you just comment on that? Is that, a, so what's the um, yeah, what's but... the relevance of that? Do we see, will we see improved chain efficiency by more people doing pay join? Uh, I'm, I'm actually, I'm not that, I'm not sure about that. So without pay join, what you'd have is from the point of view of the merchant, every incoming transaction will be one input, which they can, they're most likely to get them in. So we know demand for the block demand for block space has a cyclical pattern. So demand's really high in the daytime, like when it's daytime in Europe and America, and then demand is very low at nighttime or at the weekends. So normally what merchants do is they get inputs, they get these payments, and they do nothing uh, until Sunday nights or that kind of time, and then they consolidate them all into one. So when you have a pay join, instead of having every every payment being you UTXO being a new input, you have one or, or let's say one input, which just gets bigger and bigger. It has a has more BTC value each time you get a payment. So what's happening there in terms of uh, block space is the consolidation that used to happen on Sunday night when demand was low now happens in the daytime on a weekday when demand is relatively high. So I'm not actually sure that it um, saves block space. Like, but it's not, it's not terrible. It might use a tiny bit more because the demand has shifted around in time, but it's, um, I don't know if it, yeah, I don't think it makes it cheaper. Are you making the argument there that the bytes would be lower? The bytes, literally the byte size of the transaction is lower, but you'd be paying more sats per byte for that transaction because it's during the peak time as opposed to the off peak time. No, I think the bytes is slightly higher. Um, because these consolidation transactions, that the ones that happen on a Sunday night, they're very, they're normally very big. They have like a hundred or two hundred inputs all going to one output, and then then all the the cost is because it's one big transaction. The cost there's amortization savings, and with these pay joins, are quite small. Each individual transaction pays for things like the lock time bytes and the end sequence values and what else. Uh, that that kind of thing, uh, uh, some bytes which are constant for each transaction, each transaction. Which, which, to be fair, is a very small effect, but they, um, I, th I mean, uh, this, uh, this is obviously hard. This is like talking about economics in a way. You don't really know for sure until you actually try it out. And even if they are a little bit more expensive, I still think people will do them because privacy is it's quite valuable. Like people, if, if people didn't want privacy, they might use PayPal instead of Bitcoin. And uh, another thing on this um, pay join question is the... The holistic aspect of it, right? So it might be one thing for the merchant to use pay joins, 
but then is that merchant then doxing in some other way when they merge those inputs? Like, for example, that merchant might have a hot wallet uh, cluster inside their BTC pay server or whatever other thing they're using. And then they've now got to spend that out into their cold storage or right they might be periodically flushing that out into their cold storage or they might be paying their suppliers are are there impacts there that you can see that well they have to sort of holistically also do coin joins on the way out of that receipt of all those pay joins if you understand what i'm asking yeah i know what you mean but it's um it's the same if you didn't use pay join so if anyone sends you a transaction with or without pay join they know one of your bitcoin transactions and they can later watch where that goes and they could see it goes to your supplier or something like that. So pay join doesn't change in that situation. So really, the it's it's important to think about the threat mod, different threat models and what pay join actually does. So the way I like to explain it is pay join is a customer and a merchant together protecting both their privacy and their threat is a third party who analyzes the blockchain. So the it, within a pay join uh, the merchant doesn't get privacy from the customer and the customer doesn't get privacy from the merchant so they both know for example the amount being spent and pay join pay join stops the third party uh, viewing them so that means from the merchant's point of view if their customer is a threat then pay join doesn't help them and yes then they have to do a regular coin join when they go and pay a supplier for example yeah so essentially then it means they need to just think about doing coin joins after receiving all of that before spending out into their cold storage cluster or spending to their supplier or whatever, depending on how much of a threat they view that as. Yeah. But then, all, yes, that's right. And there's also this effect that if Pedro becomes so popular that the common input ownership heuristic is essentially broken, then they can maybe get away with not using coin join because because it'll be hard for any for any adversary to make any assumptions at all about the blockchain. Yeah, that's a good point also, because the whole point is to break the heuristic. And then once the heuristic has been broken, then you can now sort of play with that a bit and use uh, on the other side and actually yeah, use that, make use of that fact rather. Yeah, there's two points that it's uh, one effect is generally like a positive externality, breaking the heuristic for everyone, for all Bitcoin users. And another effect is improving privacy of the customer and the merchant. And those two things are separate, and they—I'd imagine in the beginning the the, the pro, improving the privacy of the customer and merchant will be why people do it, and as a nice side effect, everyone will gain privacy because this heuristic will be broken. Fantastic. Let's talk a little bit about one angle of criticism that occasionally Bitcoin people will receive, and that is typically from the just use Monero crowd. Now, I want to talk a little bit about why whether or not you believe that's a good answer. And so there are different concerns that you could raise about the use of Monero. Uh, I think, I guess, just high level, I could summarize a few of them, right? So you might have a concern around the scalability. Monero is commonly hard forking. There is kind of that still that need to pass through from a liquidity point of view as well around how many people are actually using Monero. And then also, how do you actually get into and out of Monero? Because you don't, if you don't necessarily want to store your value inside Monero, that's, that's a factor as well. Um, but yeah, could you just give us your high level thoughts? Is that, you know, the quote unquote, just use Monero? Is that an answer? Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. So the, for me, scalability is a really big thing there that Monero uses, it's, it's less scalable. And um, okay, well, why do we care about scalability? We care about scalability because that's decentralization that gives us security. Uh, scalability means that the full nodes 
uh, have to use mu- they have to have much more processing power than an equivalent Bitcoin full node. Uh, so, for example, Monero can't be pruned in the same way that Bitcoin can. So, Monero has an ever-growing list of all transaction outputs, and it doesn't know when they've been spent, so it can't delete them in the way that Bitcoin does. Which means disk space gets bigger much quicker than in the Bitcoin case. Another way that scalability is hurt is um, uh, the 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 cryptography used. So they have the confidential transactions and bulletproofs and all that kind of thing, ring signatures. And I remember uh, Greg Maxwell, I remember him commenting that uh, if you did the calculations for, if you scaled up Monero to have the same number of transactions per second as Bitcoin, then a Monero full node could not run on regular hardware. It could only run on like really beefy servers. Um, And that's directly because of all the extra CPU and, and that kind of thing being used. Uh, so the the kind of the analogy, the well, not the analogy, but like the, the concrete sort of argument I like to use is, okay, if you want more privacy, why don't you use Digicash? So for people that don't know, Digicash was this digital cash startup from the 90s, and it was a company, and it implemented uh, Chamian eCash, and that's this privacy protocol that's been known for decades, and um, it has complete, it has perfect privacy, information theoretic privacy. So it means even if you had an infinitely powerful computer, you could not break that privacy. Um, so why doesn't it exist today? Well, it doesn't exist because it was centralized. So the company like went bankrupt one day and the whole thing shut down. Uh, so you can't tell people to go use Digicash because it had no security. It wasn't decentralized enough. And when people say, oh, we should use Monero, I kind of see it in the same way that they're trading away security in order to get some privacy. Um, and I think that's a really bad trade-off that maybe it's a bit ironic that I mostly work on privacy, but I think Bitcoin security is way more important in that sense. Because once you have Bitcoin that exists, that can resist attack, then you can build privacy on top. You can build it into the system more. Well, if you've started with a system that already has poor security, you can't, you can't really ever fix that. Like security should be the top priority. And it's also fair to point out that Monero does often hard fork. What risks do you see with a protocol that often hard forks? Yeah, that's right. Uh, hard for, well, hard forking is essentially, it's, um, it, it's centralizing around developers. So there's a bunch of developers on the GitHub or however they organize and they say, okay, we should do this hard fork. We're going to do it in a few weeks or months or whatever. And everyone, the entire economy is just going to swap over. And uh, that means the whole Monero ecosystem has to follow their GitHub, has to um, make sure they're, you know, check that, deploy the code and that kind of thing. And um, that that also isn't scalable. Like in, I, I know in Bitcoin, there's lots of Spanish speaking users who don't speak English. Um, and that that kind of thing would never work for them. They'd have to, um, if you want, it, like the whole point of money is so people can trade it across different languages and so it can be permissionless and all around the world. And if you actually centralize on one GitHub around one group of developers, that goes against that. Uh, and I believe the, so I don't know the detail, but as I understand, I think the Monero crew, the Monero people basically have a different philosophy around ASIC resistance as well. So it might be that potentially it leads to a less secure network against a more well-funded attacker. Uh, what's your view on that? Uh, there's, um, I haven't done much research on this, but I've, I remember a great PDF um, written quite a few years ago now called something. I think it was just called ASICs.pdf. I can I can link it to you to add to the show notes. But it was it made the argument that um, what you really want in ASICs is to then be 
simple enough that anyone could produce them. Not anyone, but like anyone with enough technical skill could produce them. And what can happen if you if you're constantly hard forking to get a new to get have a new proof of work algorithm, then you'd be you make it harder and harder to make an ASIC, and then that increases that means you have like anyone who wants to make an asic would have to have more they have to have more startup capital costs than it would it's essentially another way of centralization it means only the the most well capitalized firms can make an asic um and I, ideally you at least what we, we hope in bitcoin i think we're moving towards that is that asics become the knowledge of how to make a bitcoin asic is becomes spread far and wide and many many people know how to make one and that uh, ultimately secures our decentralization of mining and also, it's worthwhile, uh, we're talking about, well, when we're talking about privacy, a common concept here is the one of anonymity set. And when a person is trying to get into and out of Monero, they still have to find a way to do that. And that still requires people going across a liquidity set, uh, if that makes sense. Like they might have to buy Monero on some exchange or they might need to use perhaps one of those uh, swap services as well. So do you have any comments there in terms of, comparative analysis there of bitcoin and monero from a you know anonymity set of the liquidity analysis yeah that's right so i think um uh, monero has i think it was uh 50 times less or 100 times less I, I should i should check the numbers but it's that kind of it's, let's say 100 times less transactions per second than than bitcoin uh, and when you're checking this you should uh check because monero blocks have a different interval to bitcoin blocks but if you compare like for like, then Monero has way fewer transactions than Bitcoin. And that means you have anyone who wants privacy has less of a crowd that they're hiding in. And that comes back to the point I was making about uh, scalability and security and that Monero can't really increase their transactions per second because their full nodes, their, their resource cost is much higher because those transactions will all have to be verified by people's CPUs and, and, and that just isn't scalable. Um, another point that is worthwhile discussing is what are the darknet markets using? So as I understand, it's still mostly Bitcoin, uh, but I, I hear rumors that there are um, some that are switching to try and use Monero or I, I think in practice they use a combo of both. But I think there are some or one at least that came out going only Monero. Now, in the spirit of intellectual honesty and so on, we, we, you can't just deny that, right? That is a factor. Uh, and it's sort of like, is that a competitor to Bitcoin uh, in, from a privacy perspective? And how are you thinking about that point? Oh, I'm, I think I might be the wrong person to ask. I don't know much, too much about the details of darknet markets and like the ecosystem. Um, I'd guess it will be interesting to see which... If there's a market which uses both, it might be interesting. Maybe someone could ask the vendors or something like that. How man, how, like how much volume do they get for Bitcoin and how much do they get for Monero? And that's to see how much, because there's a big difference between offering something, offering to accept this coin and people actually using that coin. Right. And it's, I mean, there's, there's a, I mean, there's so many different factors we could go into there because it could be that it's denominated in something in one currency, but the actual uh, payment rail used is Monero or something else. Uh, so that's that's another factor to consider. Uh, you, we have to we have to also think about like which one is likely to be the economic winner, right? Like Bitcoin with its kind of certain culture and so on of everyone being sort of so set on the limit of twenty one million and being so um, focused on that and focused on as you mentioned the broader security element of having enough people being able to run it. 
um, versus, say, Monero, which is in a more narrow sense, more private, but potentially less secure in a macro global sense. Yeah, exactly. There's that there's that network network effect thing that um, that people like if someone I don't know from the point of view of a developer if they want to make a difference then they're going to go for the biggest most used currency which would be Bitcoin like I know um, for my my kind of privacy research I've always been focused on Bitcoin because that kind of it seems it's the most scalable and the most secure secure and you can make the most difference uh, from that and I imagine it's like if there's a vendor who wants to accept the cryptocurrency they'll go for the one which has the most users and it's, um, so yeah, so net, network effects will always be a big advantage to the to Bitcoin, to the most dominant uh, currency. Right, and I mean, I guess I can imagine a parallel world. So let's say, um, you know, a couple of years ago, Roger Veer was going on about, oh my God, the Bitcoin dominance is dropping, right? And he was saying, oh, look, people are using altcoins, we need to blah, blah, blah. And that was part of their argument of like, oh, this is why we need to have big blocks and scale on chain and so on. Yeah, well, that dominance, that Bitcoin dominance metric is completely like it's fake. It can easily be manipulated. So it's, I mean, it's based on market capitalizations and you can very easily fake that. Like I could make an altcoin now, call it Chriscoin, and have one trillion units. And then I sell one of those units to you for $1. And then, oh, look, I've got a, a coin of $1 trillion market cap. Look how great I am. Bitcoin's dominance is zero or 0.1. So really, you're not, right, market right. capitalization is not the thing you should be looking at adoption how many people use it um how many and not just how many transactions there are but what the demand for block space is so it's easy to get loads of transactions if they're all free but what we see with bitcoin is there's transactions which actually pay a significant minor fee which means bitcoin really brings value to people like they're willing to pay this which means they find it useful right and so it comes down to ultimately what are people willing to pay for and so i guess the point i'm getting at there obviously i'm not a (laughs) not a a, a proponent of on-chain scaling or of monero uh, but I, I could imagine a parallel world where someone tries to make that argument of, oh, look, Monero use in darknet markets is rising. Therefore, you know, Bitcoin needs to do this, this, that, and the other to do privacy, right? You could imagine that parallel yeah, world, right? Yeah, you know, I can understand that. And I think Bitcoin will get there. There's lots of privacy ideas, like this pay join thing we were talking about. And there's a few um, things like coin swaps and coin join XT and loads of other, we have loads of, we have loads of ideas of how to improve the whole thing without completely creating a whole new currency like Monero. And uh, even with Lightning, so all these things, all blockchains have the scalability problems and we have Lightning as a big step forward for that. So you could imagine even Monero could say, okay, we're not very scalable, we'll just adopt Lightning and that'll be private. But really you'd, uh, Lightning on Monero would have the same kind of privacy as Lightning on Bitcoin. So you may as well just use Lightning on Bitcoin if you want a scalable um, payment rail that's really private. Going back to just the pay join aspect, and I think coming to the question of adoption and use of it, so it sounds like uh, obviously the BTC pay server inbuilt wallet obviously has pay join support now, uh, or pay pay to endpoint support, and uh, the Blockstream guys were mentioning that it will be coming to Blockstream Green, which is a, a smartphone Bitcoin wallet. I, th- I believe Blue Wallet are looking to uh, adopt it also. Uh, so, Chris, what's your view on uh, the Bitcoin ecosystem's adoption of pay to endpoint? Do you see that happening and becoming the standard, uh, or what's your view there? Yeah, I, I hope it does. I mean, it, um, this stuff has—it's another network effect argument. This stuff has value if every wallet and every service can adopt it, like it can send and receive these um, transaction types. So, I hope they do. And 
And if, uh, you know, like a message to your listeners, if your wallet doesn't, uh, uh, I don't know, in six months or a year, if your wallet doesn't adopt this kind of pay join on, um, and you can't pay people on BTC server, then just get another wallet, one which does. Yeah. So um, if people want it, it will be adopted, I reckon. And also your thoughts on competing standards, because it may, I guess, it's one of those things where Samurai Wallet, as you know, have Stowaway, which is their version of uh, PayJoin, basically. And it's at this point, it's not looking like they will be necessarily compatible with the BTC Pay Server uh, Pay to Endpoint version. Uh, and so do you have any thoughts on that and whether it's better to see sort of competing visions of how to do a pay join yeah well they're they're slightly they're slightly different the two things right so uh samurai wallets one uh okay so btc pay servers one there's actually a connection between like a tcp connection between the customer and the merchant and over this over this connection they send information back and forth and samurai wallets uh, so obviously that doesn't work if you're if you're paying someone who has another smartphone then you can't connect directly to them like that's much harder um, so the, the way Samurai's wallet ones work is it has QR codes and the two, if you're, you pay another Samurai wallet user, um, and you, you you get, I think you get the two phones together and you, they show each other the QR codes and that's the way of transferring the information across to make a pay join. So if you think about it, they work in different cases. This BTC pay, pay server one works when it's merchants, like which have a, they're always on, they have a website. You can always connect to them. They're not behind a firewall or anything like that. And Samurai Wallet's one is seems to be designed for two different smartphones. So, for example, if you're trading bitcoins for cash, like in a physical meetup, um, so they, they don't actually <clears throat> they they don't contradict that much. Like they're they're for different uses. So I could imagine in the future that Samurai implements both. That this the the one for paying if you're paying a BTC Pay server, and they keep the one with the QR codes, and they're and they're both pay joins. From a join market perspective, if you want to do pay join, uh, would that would the join market version be compatible or would you be looking to make it compatible with the BTC pay server pay to endpoint? Uh, it's not, no, it's not compatible today, but it's, um, it will be definitely a good idea to make it compatible, uh, or like to implement it so you can pay this kind of the, the, the protocol that BTC pay server uses. So if there's a PR open for that, I'd gladly uh, review it and test it. I don't have much time these days to do that, but, um, yeah, it will be good if it was done. I, I've got nothing against it, to put it that way. Fantastic. So, look, let's talk a bit about Join Market then. So, obviously, you are the Join Market OG. Uh, I know you have been discussing and working on this concept of fidelity bonds. So, oh, yeah. what is a fidelity bond and what's it used for? So, a fidelity bond is a, generally speaking, it's a way if you, it's a way that someone can sacrifice value in a way that can be proved to a third party. So, uh, for example, they're, these are ideas going back years. Um, you could imagine if there's an internet forum and it's it's got loads of spammers. Uh, there's people going on and posting loads of spam essentially. So one way to st- one way to stop the spam is to add some kind of cost, and you could do this anonymously without requiring any ID if you use Bitcoin. So like it, one way to use fidelity bonds here, you would require each new account to sacrifice some Bitcoin, like send I don't know 0.00 whatever one to a to a burner address and that's associated with that account and that means if you've your forum can't be spammed because the spammer would have to be burning loads of bitcoin but regular people they still only need to sacrifice a small amount to get access to the forum that they're doing so in general these fidelity bonds can be useful as a way of stopping 
these Sybil attacks or or that kind of, for example, spamming spamming forums, and they are they um, the 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 crucial part is they're a sacrifice which can be proved. So it's a lot like proof of work for Bitcoin. If you have a proof of work hash, you can prove it to someone, like to, to anyone essentially. They can check it and they can you can really prove that like this much hash power has been put into making this proof. Awesome. And so can you shed a little light for us on how Fidelity bonds would work in join market? Yeah. So um, join market has this liquidity market where there's market takers, we call them, who want to make a coin join right now and they pay, they pay a small coin join fee. On the other side, there's market makers and they're willing to make a coin join whenever and in return, they earn this coin join fee. So the way Fidelity bonds would work is that we'd code um, a routine in the taker, which means it would preferentially choose makers who have more valuable Fidelity bonds, which means that there'll be a market pressure for makers to have Fidelity bonds and add it to their bot. So their bot would, as well as announcing how much coin joins they're, like, they're willing to make and what their fee is, they'd also, amount, they'd also announce this proof. So it would say, uh, for example, it would it would have um, a UTXO, which is a time locked Bitcoin, uh, which can I don't know, it's locked for six months and it's worth I don't know 0.1 bitcoins. And uh, then the taker would from that calculate the value of the Fidelity bond and say, okay, this this bot sacrificed a lot. This bot sacrificed like nothing. I'm going to go with the bot that sacrificed a lot. And the effect there would be that, in the same way, it would be much harder to Sybil attack join market. It would mean if someone if someone wants to make lots of fake bots in join market to um, to try and be all the makers at once, it would cost them a lot of money. So help me understand here. Is it sort of like you're locking it, you're time locking your own Bitcoin and you're sort of proving to other people, hey, look, I've locked up a lot of Bitcoin and I actually can't use it for this six months or for however, however long you've done the time locking. And then you would still get it back, but then you might recommit to that again because you want to keep being a join market maker is that am i understanding you correctly there yeah exactly so that's uh there's two ways that i know of to make the to make this kind of sacrifice so one way is just to burn the bitcoins to send them to an unspendable address and um and then the sacrifice is like if you've sent not like one bitcoin to if you burned one bitcoin your sacrifice is one bitcoin another way is to lock you can use the opcode check lock time verify and lock the bitcoins for some time in the future and then your sacrifice is the time value of money because uh, you'd get the Bitcoins back at the end, but you, you wouldn't get them today. You'd get them in six months or in a year, whenever. Um, and I'd expect in practice, people will be doing this by time locking their Bitcoins. Awesome. So uh, in terms of Fidelity bonds in join market, how far along is the idea? Have you already like started coding for it? Or yeah, is this like yeah. a concept? These days I'm coding it. I'm, um, I'm making, so right now today, I'm working on the, the wallet, like the, the join market wallet, which can support these time locked addresses and also burner, like burner outputs. I'm coding that because it's um, there, there's a lot of there's economic reasoning as well. That would be really cool also to see how this works in practice. Like it's an experiment as well as, uh, as like as well as making it work. You, you were touching on this earlier. Is there a way to quantify the Sybil resistance provided by people doing fidelity bonds in join market? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a really important part of it. So we know in in Satoshi's white paper, there's a whole section on on how you would attack this this mining proof of work thing, and he come, he essentially comes up with the fifty one percent attack there. That if you have if you have an like hash power bigger than everyone else in the entire network, you can make you can do a simple attack. 
uh, the way you do it in uh, in these fidelity bonds is so a really crucial part of the argument is that the value of the bond is I've called it v squared. So if you sacrificed two bitcoins, the value of the bond is actually four because two times two is four. And same, I don't know, if you had five bitcoins, the value will be twenty-five, which is uh, five times five. And that gives an incentive for people to only run one bot because it means if they have if they have a certain stash which they want to use for fidelity bonds, they'll get the most value if they lump it all together. If they split it up over many bots, uh, they'll they'll be at a disadvantage. And that gives that gives um, that gives pre that, that preferentially helps honest bots who want to just make money because they'll just run one bot. But if you're a civil attacker who wants to who wants to spy on people, you you have to run loads of bots because coin joins have like ten or or eight or however many um, other users in them. So if the civil attacker wants to attack someone who's making an eight party coin join, they have to run eight bots, and this v squared term will make them will make them have like a, a disadvantage. Now, the way you work out the actual numbers is, uh, so there's a, a document I've written called the Financial Mathematics of Fidelity Bonds. And they, you, you, you draw uh, probability tree diagrams. It's this thing if you, like it's from, it's schoolboy maths essentially. Like there's a, a tree and um, you, you, like, you repeatedly choose from a set without replacement. And that's, you can, I coded it up in Python to figure out, um, to put numbers on it essentially. So there's a good, I've written down some numbers so you can get the idea. So suppose we have honest makers and they have a fidelity bond value of 10. And then there's two Sybil makers and they have each have a fidelity bond value of 100. So 100 times more. And our taker is making a three-party coin join. So himself plus two people. And then we can work out what's the probability that the Sybil attackers will win. That they'll be both of these, they'll be both of the makers and therefore they'll be able to unmix the coin join. And it turns out that, uh, so just to repeat the numbers again, the honest maker has a value of 10 and the two Sybils have a value of 100. And it turns out the Sybil attack will fail 24% uh, of the time. So about one in four, which I found really surprising because the Sybil attackers have sacrificed 100 times as much value as the honest makers. Um, and that, that you can compare that to, to how proof of work works, which there's this 51% attack that if the adversary has... Um, more hash power than everyone else put together, they'll win. And in the fidelity bond system, they they don't just mean they don't just need fifty one percent; they need way more. So I've uh, I've worked out the numbers, and uh, I've taken so I've used realistic numbers. So I've taken from from joint market all the 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 bitcoins being advertised today for for coin joins, and said, what if all these people just lock them up for six months and use them for fidelity bonds? What would it cost to a Sybil attack such a system? And it turns out the adversary would have to sac would they have to lock up fifty thousand bitcoins for six months, which is uh, at today's price it's about three hundred fifty million uh, USD, or they'd have to send about a hundred bitcoins to a burner address, and that would give them uh, that would allow that would give them a ninety five percent chance of successfully Sybil attacking the system. So nineteen times out of, of out of twenty. Um, so I think those numbers are quite good, which is why it's why I'm quite excited about the whole thing. Right, and so as you're saying, it's the idea is to try and is to use that asymmetric idea of making it more costly to attack than to defend. And so I guess just summarizing, the idea is when you're in a coin join, you 
one of the fears or risks is that the other parties in the coin join are actually one person and then they through the process of elimination know what your coin is post mix or um in the mix uh, depth right? Yeah, that's right and so they would say i know that this output is actually chris belcher's output uh whereas in if if you are coin joining with honest participants only i think um in the join market model uh was it, is it the taker who knows the mapping yeah right and so that's kind of the difference there and so in terms of how it might look for the user who wants to do a coin join, would they be individually selecting participants and then saying, oh, okay, look, um, participant A has a V squared of 100 and participant B has a V squared of 150, so I'll go with participant B? Or like, how, how would that work? Or is it, I mean, I presume yeah, a lot so of this they, is just being automated, right? Yeah, so they could choose if they wanted to. With join market today, you can choose, but... It- it can also be made automated. I think that's a better user experience that the user just clicks send and then every it all happens behind the scenes and out of the other end you get the coin join which like has all the you know has really good privacy. Uh, so how it would work is the the taker like the, the the wallet would ask the user what's the maximum they're willing to pay for a coin join fee, and then all the bots which are cheaper than that it would choose from them randomly, but it would have a you'd have a greater chance to choose people to choose bots which have a greater fidelity bond value so their fidelity bond value will be their probability of being chosen yeah and the the sybil resistance comes that if there's even one bot who's honest then that will introduce uncertainty into the coin join and it's it's essentially that's why the it's why the system is uh, so costly to attack because the honest makers if they get chosen they only need to get lucky once for the for the sybil attack to fail and the civil attackers, they have to get lucky every single time. So if the taker's choosing eight other bots, um, the civil attacker has to get lucky all those eight times and have their own bots be chosen. And if even one honest maker comes in, then there's uncertainty added. One other question I had around the join market model and just in coin joining in general is obviously it's ideal to do remixing. And so how does remixing play into that idea? Because if you're... So hypothetically, let's say you are concerned that there might be some Sybil attacker in the pool of participants. How does remixing play in and help you avoid or help you mitigate that risk? Yeah, so uh, remixing is just doing uh, multiple coin joins, doing one and then doing another coin join and another one. And all these calculations I mentioned, they're just for one single coin join. Um, so I've been using the figure 95%, like that's a good success rate to aim for, and that's equivalent to 19 out of 20 times. And if you do, if you did five coin joins, that's the, the calculation there is 95% raised to the fifth power. So 95% times 95 times 95. And that's, I can't do it in my head, but the, the, pro, the probability, like the, the probability of a civil success gets lower and lower each time. Um, and that's that's uh, doing remixing, as you call it, doing multiple coin joins is built into the join market script, which is called Tumblr. And yeah, that, that's what it is. That you start with some Bitcoins and it does many coin joins to try and make their trace disappear. And so one other question around the Tumblr and the multiple mixing aspects or multiple rounds of mixing, does it matter? I guess it does matter the order, right? So would it, or maybe, maybe it doesn't. So let's say you were doing five rounds of tumbling in join market and you got six does it matter whether you got successfully sybil attacked on the first round or the fifth round does that matter or is it just like if you got sybil attacked on the first round but then you actually ran through another four rounds 
not Sybil attacked, you're fine now, right? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So I'd guess, um, just thinking out loud now, if you got Sybil attacked on the very first coin join, then the Sybil attacker could see the source. Like they'd see the coins you started with and, and they'd see your, the destination of that first coin join. And then the other, the other four or five coin joins, if they're not Sybil attacked, then they'd still add privacy. Um, so yeah, I guess it would be fine there. And if you got Sybil attacked on the last coin join, then the Sybil attacker would see, yeah, they'd see your destination going to your cold wallet or something like that, but they couldn't look backwards. They couldn't look back in your source because the other four coin joins earlier would would be genuinely private. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think that for the Sybil attacker to see, they'd have to Sybil attack all those, all the, all the five coin joins or however many you did. So Tumblr by default right. does, it's a random number, but not about 10 or 15. Gotcha. So basically, it's it's a good um, defense because it means they need to successfully sibyl you 10 to 15 times in a row. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Okay. And so we've spoken about some of the benefits. What are some of the downsides or are there any unsolved problems that you can see with Fidelity Bonds? Yeah. So um, one of them is, I suppose it's not, it's not necessarily a downside. I think it'll be fine, but it's um, it would make the, the coin join fees go up because... There'd be there'd probably be fewer people that join join market makers would be more capital intensive and the only way the market could support that is if coin if if they earn more money if coin join fees go up. So right now they are they're really cheap. It's like a hundred satoshi or maybe five hundred satoshi or, or depends. It can be really it can some people even have zero or ten satoshi. Uh, so I don't think that'll be a problem because it, it's really cheap compared to minor fees or other costs of using Bitcoin. So um, that'll be fine. Another problem is. Uh, just locking up coins is might be kind of annoying that makers might not want to do that, but they get paid for it. So I'm sure they'll do it. But the biggest thing that kind of worries me is, so I mentioned this, this V squared thing, which gives an incentive for people to uh, only run one bot and not spread out their, their coins over many bots. Uh, like they won't make more money doing that. That also gives an incentive for multiple people to put their coins into one bot. If you see what I mean, to combine, combine their coins, even though they're different people. And that would that would look like that would look like people renting out their fidelity bonds. So you could you could imagine a situation where there's some service and it says you sign this so lock up your coins in a time locked address and then send me the signature and I'll give you some satoshis for that. Uh, and they'd make more money because of the V squared thing, which gives the incentive for lumping. Now uh, some solutions to that is from what I've thought of is you can make the takers only accept one single UTXO. So not accept five different UTXOs as the Fidelity bond, but just one. And that means that people couldn't uh, just lock up coins in their own hardware wallet and send the signature because it would invalidate the others. But that could still be broken if you have multi-party multi -party ECDSA computation. So you could have a, it would work. This is the kind of, you know, worst case nightmare scenario, but there'd be, um, there'd be this, this, Maker, which one, which is uh, takes other people's fidelity bonds, and they have a special wallet, and you send your bitcoins in that, and it has a pre-signed transaction which returns your bitcoins to you, a bit like uh, a bit like in Lightning Network. Um, then, uh, the then your co your coins will be in this fidelity bond locked up for a few months, and you you could always get them back, but they'd be they'd be actually contributing to someone else's fidelity. To someone else's bot, someone else's fidelity bonds, um, and uh, so that that could happen. You can't stop this from happening, and I'd kind of expect it would be. I don't think people really do it because they'd 
they'd have to get their hoards, like all their, you know, the hard-earned Bitcoin savings, and have to put them in a really exotic kind of wallet, which does multi-party ECDSA computation. I don't think people would do it. We'd also, we'd also see adverts everywhere. Like you'd have to see Google ads or ads on Reddit or Twitter saying, "Hey, you could get extra money if you give if you put your bitcoins in this fancy new wallet." Oh, I've never seen those ads before. Yeah, and that that would be an indication that the system is broken. <laughs> uh, no, I mean I'm just referring to all the yeah, stupid yeah. scamming. No, but, but this is really the, the scammy ones are they're custodial, so they can literally steal your money. And in this one, because of the the cryptography, they wouldn't they wouldn't be able to steal it. But the the wallet software would be it's only used for this, and it probably wouldn't be that well reviewed. So right, I see. Yeah. It. Yeah. So it would take a lot of collusion, or as you said, uh, the the renting concept. Yeah. Okay, I guess just with join market more broadly, do you have any views around uh, ways to uh, make it easy for people to use? I know some of this I discussed in my earlier interview with Waxwing, uh, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on this uh, question because it seems to me like join market is uh, one of those things where you have to be more technically competent to use it. Uh, and so do you have any uh, thoughts around that or do you do you believe it just it just it's just the nature of the thing that only more technical people can use it well I don't think it has to be only for more technical people but it's it's kind of inevitable but for now it will be I think a good analogy is a bit how uh, win between Windows and Linux uh, at least 10 or 15 years ago um, and that at least in the in the beginning Linux was really hard to use that you had to compile your own kernel and do loads of stuff on the command line yourself um, but you got the benefits that Linux was you know, really good compared to Windows. Um, uh, but when, then Windows is much easier to use, right? And uh, I think there's a similar kind of thing that Join Market has this open source model that it, it's decentralized. It doesn't like it, it doesn't take fees or like none of the fees go to developers or anything like that. So it's it develops very slowly and people develop things that interest them most in a way. Um, but it, I think it will improve slowly. So now Linux today is much easier to use than it was when I when I first started using it. So I know recently uh, Waxwing, um, like a, there was a nice development. Waxwing found a way, uh, figured out or, or fixed the thing where you can have Join Market in an app image. So you could you could download the you could download this file and you don't have to install anything. You just double click it and it, and then Join Market opens up. Uh, and that's like a small step to making it easier to to use. And I think small incremental bits of progress like that could mean in a in a few years or so, then join market will be as easy to use as, as something else. But you can see the incentive thing because the other things like Wasabi Wallet and Samurai, they they directly get money from their customers. So they, you know, they, they can employ developers and, and make things really easy to use like Windows is. And I think that's fine as well. Like they, yeah, they're the two kind of, not business models, but the two ways of operating are all, all legitimate. And they like, you know, Windows and Linux coexisted fine for, for ages. Right, yeah. And so in terms of contributions or support for Join Market, uh, is there anything you would like to shout out? Is there anything that you would like to um, request from the listeners? Yeah, so my uh, Join Market and my research and all of that is only supported by um, donations from the public. So they, um, uh, if, if your listeners are interested in supporting this stuff, if they want to help Bitcoin privacy and that kind of thing, then they should uh, give the Join Market project a donation. Um, so the the URL it it's um, uh, bitcoinprivacy.me forward slash join market hyphen donations, and you can find an address there to donate to. For listeners who want to find you online, 
where can they find you? Uh, so I have a, a Twitter, which is uh, Chris underscore Belcher underscore. I'm also on GitHub, uh, github.com forward slash Chris hyphen Belcher. Um, I'm on uh, Reddit, which is u slash Belcher underscore. Uh, where else? Uh, there's an e- email address if you want to email me, which is Belcher at riseup.net. I think that just about wraps it. There's also the, the bitcoinprivacy.me site has a, a on the main page has a bunch of uh, ways to contact me as well and uh, are links to some of my things I've created. Awesome. Well, thanks very much for joining me today, Chris. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to support me, make sure you give it a review on Apple iTunes or subscribe on YouTube, share it with your friends. If you would like to advertise on the show or give me an email, you can find me at stefanlevera at pm.me. You can also find the show notes and the transcript for the episode at stefanlevera.com slash 167. That's it from me, and I'll see you in the Citadels. Mm-hmm.